Okay, good morning, everyone. For those who are experiencing morning right now and good evening to those joining us from other parts of the world. We're very happy to see so many folks back for our continued journey through Genesis with Rabbi Silver. Uh, those of you joining us on Zoom, thank you. Uh, if you feel inspired to accept the invitation to become a panelist so that you can turn your camera on and show your face and be in the room for class, so to speak. It also helps you to uh, unmute and mute yourself on your own without so much assistance from me when we have time for questions, comments, discussion. Um, you're also, of course, welcome to use the chat here on Zoom if that's your preference. Those joining us on Facebook Live, good morning, glad you're here. You can put questions and comments in the comment section right below the video, and I will keep track of them and bring them over here if there are any. And to those joining us on Drisha Live, we're glad that you're learning with us. So the text for this class, of course, is the Tanakh, uh, and you are more than welcome to use your own. Uh, for those who prefer not to be flipping pages, that's perfectly all right. I will do my best to keep us up to date with pertinent text on screen for your convenience. And without further ado, Rabbi Silver, please. Thank you very much. Okay, so we're in the middle of chapter 34, story of Dina. And um, the, we've gotten to the point where um, Shem and his father Hamar go out. Initially, it says that Hamor went out to greet Yaakov. Yaakov waits for his children to return. And there's a meeting of the four parties. There's Yaakov and his children. And then there's um, Shrem and Hamor. And Shrem has said that he wants to marry Tina. He tells them to name their price and he will be happy to pay the bride price, the dowry bride price. And then, um, in addition to that, though, there's an offer to, and this is important, there's an offer that in general, um, there should be intermarriage between the two parties, between Shechem on one hand, the people of Shechem and Yaakov's family. They should dwell together. Um, in the words of the uh, Torah, um, it's, um, Teshvu ba'aretz, aretz yelufnechem, shvuz so the, that offer is found in chapter 34. You will dwell with us. We can intermarry. You will give us your daughters and you will take ours. And um, you can dwell together with us. It's not simply dwelling together, it's intermarrying as well. And now we have the response. Yaakov says nothing. Yaakov does not respond. One of the interesting questions in the chapter. But his sons speak up, and that be, we began in chat in verse number 13. So we pointed out two things, maybe three. First of all, that which means to respond, often means to respond. But in this particular case, it probably is a play on the very first verse of chapter 34. Where it says he took her vayaneha. That's in verse number two, actually, of chapter 34. Vayaneha, he uh, he abused her, often sexually abused, sexual abuse is inui. So that is perhaps related to that. And then we're told they spoke the mirma in this deception or guile. 
that's certainly a negative term. It's what Yitzchak has said about Yaakov, your brother, about you told Esav, your brother came to Mirma in Guile and took your blessing. And then the Torah gives the reason that they speak this way, Asher Timei ate Dina Achotam, he had defiled their sister Dina. In fact, that term Timei appears earlier in the story as well, when Yaakov first hears. We're told that Yaakov heard, uh, Yaakov Shema ki Timei et in verse number five. Timei, defile, make impure, etc. Obviously a negative term throughout the Bible. So they're speaking from that perspective. The Torah tells us their perspective, that he's defiled their sister, and there's, and they're speaking in guile and, and, and deceptively. They have something, they have a plan in mind. Now over here, it's interesting to note, take note of this, that in verse number 13, it says that the sons of Jacob spoke Bermirma. It doesn't single out particular sons because later in the chapter, the Torah will single out two, specifically two of the sons of Yaakov, Shimon and Levi. But over here, the speaking in, with Guile is B'nai Yaakov, all of Jacob's sons. It's not just two, it's all of them. And they, they have the following, they say the following. They say, they said to them, that is to Shechem and Hamar, we can't do this. We can't give our sister to an uncircumcised man. This is a cherpa, a disgrace for us. So we can't do this. The condition, though, in the next verse, in verse 15, we, we, we agree under, under this condition. So it's interesting to note, they say under these, we can't do it under these conditions, it's not possible. But if you, if you circumcise the men, then we can give you our daughters and take yours. We will dwell with you. And then they add three words, which Shem and Hamar did not say. The brothers say this. will become one nation. That seems to go beyond what was offered earlier. Earlier was, you live together with us. Yes, we'll be on good terms. Yes, there may be marriages back and forth. But the statement, we become one nation, that wasn't uh, mentioned by either Shem or Hamar. It's the brothers who say such a thing. And one can only wonder here uh, whether it is, you know, I mean, the, that's not a possibility. You can't in the book of Breshit become one nation with these people. For starters, they are Chivi, they are Canaanites. Um, it's not really, it's not in the cards basically. So the question is, we know they're speaking Bermirma, but the, but the question that hovers over the story, of course, is always, well, the two questions. What is the Torah's point of view? What is the narrator's point of view? That's a critical question that we'll deal with. We started already. And the other question is, what is Yaakov actually thinking here? Yaakov is silent. It's not possible that Yaakov would agree, as the Ramban notes, to become one nation with these people. Presumably, to, to merge them as one nation is hard to believe. We'll get back to that later on. That's what they say. 
So they seem to say under these under present circumstances we can't agree, but under these conditions we would agree. However, they continue. If you don't listen to us, that is to accept in verse number seventeen. We'll take our daughter and we will leave. You have to scroll down. Um, so right, we'll take our daughter and leave. That's so that's it. That, that's what it's. It sounds like from their speech that they feel that if they say we we don't accept it, that Shem and Hamar will say, okay, sorry to hear that. Here's your daughter Dina, and you can leave. That's what it sounds like. We'll take our daughter and go. So this is this is what the this is what the conversation is about. And now let's continue with our story. We'll get back to these core questions throughout uh, our session today. So the uh, words they offer pleases Hamar and Shem. The Nar and Shem did not hesitate, for he was he wanted, one might say, even infatuated with Jacob's daughter. He was the most respected one in, 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 in his father's house. So perhaps what he's doing is setting an example for everybody else. So he's more than happy to give in to this request because he's in love, as we've seen, with Dina, Yaakov's daughter. Now let's see what happens next. Scroll down. Now, now the question is, Hamar and Shem have to convince the people of Shechem, the town Shechem, to because that was the, the condition. We can't become one nation with you if the male men are not circumcised. So Hamar and Shechem set out to convince the townspeople to circumcise themselves. And in order to do that, they have to convince them that it's in their interest to do so. So now we see what they say, and we'll raise a question about this. These people, and now the Torah shows a very interesting word, Ashlemim. The translator says our friends. The word Shlemim doesn't literally mean friends. They are whole with us. It sounds like they are they're being they're being honest with us, or they are forthright with us. Literally means complete. But the word Shlemim is one of those words that's a a, a marker in the text. Because we saw it earlier at the end of chapter 33, and above all, we have um, we have the um, we have the covenantal promise back in chapter 15. God said to Abraham in chapter 15, the fourth generation shall return to the land. You have to wait till the fourth generation. For the sin of the Amori, until that point, will not be shalem. Um, it is, and that's actually a very important point uh, that's easy to miss. That's very easy to miss. And that is, if you count out the generations, this is a, a very important point for understanding of this chapter. If you count out the generations, God speaks to Abraham in chapter 15, the covenantal promise. 
the fourth generation shall return to the land. Three generations of suffering. And the plain meaning of the text, I think, if you count out the generations, God speaks to Abraham. He's the first generation. Yitzhak is generation number two. Yaakov is generation number three. And Vidarivi'i, and the fourth generation shall return to the land. So the fourth generation should be Yaakov's children. And if we understand return to the land, meaning possess the land, then the story of Shechem, this chapter, is about the actual possession of the land. Yaakov, we have seen, I have argued, is both third and fourth generation. He becomes Israel. But certainly the fourth generation are Yaakov's, are Yaakov's sons, Yaakov's children, it's the fourth generation. So the story over here then, this conquest of Shechem is in effect a fulfillment of the covenantal promise, which raises all kinds of interesting questions about, 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 this, this, about this event, about their behavior, etc. But it has to be understood within that framework. So now Shechem and Hamar are speaking to the people of the town. They will stay in the land, they'll settle here. They'll move about in it. Yisharu could be to move about. Schor means to go around. But Yisharu or Socher is, is, is one who sells, sells things. So maybe because people that sell typically would move from place to place to sell their goods. In any event, Sounds like they'll be with us, and this is a good business opportunity for us. For the land is large enough for them, that is to say, and don't worry, they'll take our, our, our real estate. There's plenty of room for both of us. We will take their daughters, and we'll give them our daughters. So he's speaks when he speaks when they speak to the people of Shrem, they reversed what they said earlier. Earlier they said to Yaakov and, and Yaakov's uh, sons, you will take our daughters and give us your daughters. And when he speaks to the people of Shrem, he says we will take their daughters and we'll give them our daughters. Playing on what Of course, one can make the argument that he's trying to convince them. So he's trying to sell you this deal to them in a way that makes it more attractive to them, which raises the question, what are they really thinking over here? What, is it just trying to convince them by representing it a certain way? Or in effect, is this, uh, are they saying in effect, we can co-opt them? We can, we can integrate them into our society. We'll take advantage of them. We use them for our purposes. It's a, it's, it's a win for us. And fine, let them stay with us, but we'll be able to take whatever we want and give them whatever we want. That's verse 21. Let's keep going. However, there's one, there's one condition. The people who always come to us, here he mentions the language of Yaakov's children, which they had, they had mentioned that. Only if we circumcise the males as they are circumcised. And then he adds, Their cattle, their substance, their possessions, they will be ours. 
Achneot Olahem. However, we have to agree. And if we do agree, V'yeshvu Itano. So clearly, the representation of Hamar and Shechem to the, to the town of Shechem. Shechem is the person and Shechem is the uh, town. And here it's very clear from verse number 23, what he's saying is, what they are saying is that yes, that um, will be one nation on one hand. On the other hand, it's all to our benefit because all of their possessions will become ours. So here he presents it to them as the opportunity to essentially more than integrate them into our society, integrate and take advantage of them. And again, the, the, the question here, there are a couple of different questions. Do they really mean it? That's one question. Or are they just trying to convince them? On the other hand, what the town of Shrem is hearing is certainly, this is an opportunity for us to take, to take, right? Take from them, right? Nikach, to take. Um, and this of course raises the questions, if in fact, this is what it's about, the attempt of the town of Shrem to essentially take over Jacob and Jacob's family, then it would certainly present the behavior of Shimon and Levi and the brothers and killing the whole town of Shem in a different light. It's more of the fact they kidnapped, they molested and kidnapped their sister. Now they want to actually co-opt the whole family. That's one way to read it. And then we would be, I say, more sympathetic to Shimon and Levi. But this is the question, and it's very not clear. You can't, I think, tell uh, whether it's more about just misrepresentation or whether it is really the plan. But from the standpoint of the people that are hearing it, I would say, the people of Shem, what do they know? What they're hearing is this, is, this is what it is. We circumcise the men and we were able to take the women and we're able to take their possessions as well. That's verse number 23. Let's just read a few more verses, then I'll stop and take some comments. So the townspeople, does mean to hear, it means to accept. They accepted, of means to accept. All those that uh, fellow townspeople. They did this. But on the third day, Two of them, Shimon and Levi, whom the Torah describes as Dina's brothers, took their sword. They came upon the city Betach. The city was secure, that is, they can't fight back because all the men are, are in pain. They killed all the men. And let's keep one more verse, verse number 26. They killed Hamar, they killed Shechem with a sword. They took Dina out of the house of Shechem and they left. Okay, we'll get to the continuation of the story, but the obvious question here is, what does the Torah think of all this? What is, what might say, the, the, narrative, the narrator? What is the Torah's uh, thought about this kind, about the story, about the behavior, about the various characters. Uh, before we delve into that, this is one of the critical questions. If anybody has a comment or question now, please speak right. up. Sure. 
if it's l'shem Hashem to kovesh the land is one thing, but the real issue here is revenge on the daughter. And you don't see the l'shem Hashem aspect of this kibush. No, I didn't. No, I, right. I mean, I'm not saying that even that these these sons of Yaakov are thinking even in these terms. What I am saying is that the Torah has, in fact, sp spoken of the fourth generation returning to the land, which I think means possessing the land. So, yes, I mean, I think that's a, a, something that has to be factored in in terms of what the Torah thinks of this. I'm not saying that they're doing this in order to fulfill the covenantal promise, because it's not even clear to me that they're aware of the covenantal promise. Yaakov mm -hmm. probably is, may well be, but certainly the sons may not be. But I'm saying that's another thing to factor into the story in terms of what does the Torah think. Mm. And that's actually very interesting. And even if it is a fulfillment that you will possess the land, literally return to the land, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Torah advocates for this particular behavior. After Yaakov also returned to Shechem, but Yaakov purchases the land. And those are the verses just before the story of Dina. He comes Shalem and he buys it from the, from the children of, of Hamar. The two different ways in which Jacob or Jacob's family has um, staking a claim to the land. One is through purchase and one is through battle. Has anybody else, there's several people who want to speak up, please do. Yeah, yeah the, idi the idiom, pi cherev, um, do you have any, do you, do you know what that connotes? It's, I mean, it's all over Tanakh, of course. Sometimes that is, that is, you know, used in the description of you, the use of a sword, specifically, you know, Ficharev. Sure. The sword, the, in biblical Hebrew, the sword eats and drinks. That is true. Chabito chal basar, right? So that's the idiom of it. Um, but beyond that, I have nothing to say about it. But that is certainly, of course, the Cherev in the book of Breshit reminds us, obviously, of Esau. That was Esau's blessing. You live by the sword. So the taking of the sword, the cherev, may have a negative connotation, I think. In other words, especially if you think of it in terms of covenantal fulfillment, the covenantal fulfillment using the tools of Esau might be seen as problematic, especially given the proximity to the story of Yaakov, who simply buys the land doesn't take it by force, but it's a good question in general. Oh, I just, I think I just, I think I just got part of it, which, which in this context, it's saying that, that actually the sword did their talking, their, their the continuation of their talking to those who talked to them. Not bad. Could be, could be something there. That it could be so. Because in, in point of fact, their talking isn't really talking. Their talking is misleading. In general, I would say that's an interesting point. When the when the brothers speak, yeah, the Torah tells us it's Bermirma. They're saying words, but those words aren't actually, <laughs> that's the words that they're saying are just a way to mislead the other people and to, the words are a way to set up the possibility of using the sword, that, that's, that's their words. And we have the question of when Hamar speaks to the people of the town, what do his words mean? I see, I, that's one of the problems. Then we have the other problem of Jacob says no words. He's silent altogether. So in this chapter in general, it's part of the problem. People speak and don't necessarily, we, we can't get a handle, the truth value of what they're saying. And someone that we expect to speak says nothing. 
Uh, we'll, we'll get back to this. That's a good point. Anybody else for a comment or question? I have a yes. A yes, yeah. Um So there, there's a problem when they say Shimon and Levi went in and 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 killed Shem. I can understand that. But when they say Shimon and Levi, just the brothers went in and and killed all the adult males and and we don't hear anything about it, them you know getting forces uh, among Yaakov's people how could two people just come in and kill all the males that's a good question in general I mean um, yeah I mean that's a question in general asking about from a sort of a uh, a realistic standpoint, how realistic would it be that two people could kill a whole town? Of course, number one, we don't know the size of the town. And number two, uh, your question is in place. I mean, we, I think we can ask a similar question about other stories in Breshit. I The story I'm thinking of is where Abraham, who's at least 75 at the time, probably closer to 90, takes his group of, of uh, disciples, pupils, servants the chases the north of Damascus to defeat the four most powerful kings in the world. One can ask a question about that with a lightning strike, etc. So I think sometimes we have to um, <laughs> say that the, the, the question of, of the realistic, of course, Malcolm Tzedek says because God has helped you. God can do anything. But, but in point of fact, it's a question from a realistic standpoint is in place. I'm not sure it's a question the Torah wants us to ask, though. I think the point of it is that, and let me say an additional point, which is, and this is this, this speaks to the question of their behavior altogether. There is something about their behavior, apart from what you mentioned. You mentioned the realistic problem, but the idea of killing the entire town is obviously a question, problem. But there's something else about the way they do it, which is, there are two problems with the way they do it, which is why my own view is the Torah isn't on anybody's side over here. The Torah has condemns everybody in the story. The Torah is critical of everybody in the story. And there are two things problematic about what Shimon and Levi do. First of all, they're using circumcision to kill people. Circumcision in the Chumash is described in chapter 17 in no uncertain terms as a covenant between God and the people that have entered into God's uh, God's service. So the idea that to use that as, in, as, a, as a guise to kill people is I believe from the Torah's perspective, problematic. That's one thing. And the second thing that I believe is problematic, I believe it to be the case based on a different text, which I think is connected, which is the idea of killing people who can't fight back is from the Torah's perspective, I would say the Bible's perspective, problematic. It's one thing, the Torah is not a pacifistic. The Bible is not pacifistic. Yes, we prefer peace. Sometimes there's no choice. But in point of fact, the idea of attacking people who are absolutely incapable of fighting you, right. taking advantage of their infirmities is something that in general the Bible is opposed to, and I'll give you a story where this comes up actually later in the, not in the Torah, but in the Tanakh. And that is where clearly the narrator is highly critical. And that's a story 
which is found in the book of Shoftim. Let me find that chapter. I believe it's chapter, let's find Shoftim. I believe it's chapter 20, uh, chapter 17, chapter 18. That's the story, chapter 18. That's the story where, uh, story of Pesel Micha. Pesel Micha, story of the tribe of Don. So there's a man named Micha, he sets up a house of, of idolatry, whatever it is. And the tribe of Don is unhappy with their portion that, be, that, that they've been given. The land is apportioned by, by, uh, by a goral, by, a, by, a, by a, a, a lottery, by a lot. And they don't like the portion they're given, which is in central Israel. They don't want that. So they, they, they send a bunch of scouts to scout out land up north. And we're told they see a people up north who are living in relative uh, security. They are, the, the Torah describes them a place called Layish. Am shoketu boteach. People that live in tranquility and unsuspecting people. These are not Jewish people. And they're far away from any main center. And when the, when the scouts come up, and the, the scouts also steal, as it were, will steal the, the uh, priest of, of Micha. They steal his priest. And if they go up north, they set up shop. So it's this combination of, of one in idolatry, trophim, etc. And when they get the, the scouts go up north and they see these people who are very, um, let me see how the Torah describes it. Describes it in chapter 18 of Judges. Um, it says the following in verse number seven. He says, Yoshevet Lovetach. Uses the same word, Betach. They dwell in Betach. There's no security. Kimishpat Sidonim, Shoket Uboteach, in Machlim Davaba Aretz, Yoresh Etzer, Urechokim Hemomit Sidonim, Udavar Elohem Imadam. That's what they see. A people, here they translate a tranquil and unsuspecting people. No one in the land to molest them, with no ruler distant from the Sidonim. They have no dealings with anybody. They dwell in solitude. They don't bother anybody. Nobody bothers them. Twice the Book of Shoftim uses the word betach or boteach. And the scouts come back and say, these are easy pickings. Let's go and take it over. No one's going to help them. They have no allies. And again, in verse number 10, am boteach. And that word boteach or betach, which appears three times, and clearly, that chapter is clearly highly critical of the tribe of Don, because apart from simply attacking an unsuspecting people who did them no harm, it's also a chapter all about idolatry. It's also a chapter about leaving the place that God assigned you to be and going elsewhere. Here we have a similar expression that Shimon and Levi, we are told in chapter 34, that they took their swords and they came to the city secure. No, nobody can fight. So I, I believe that actually attacking someone who can't fight you, in the case of, of Shevet Don, and unsuspecting people, they don't bother anybody, nobody bothers them. So I think that's problematic. And I think using circumcision to kill is also problematic. Also speaking, Gemirma is problematic. So there is no way, and, and it actually gets even worse, but there is no way that one can legitimately make the argument that the 
Torah has taken the side of Shimon and Levi. And that was Sternberg's point. And to me, it's completely off, totally. Um, that's not to say that the Torah simply accepts Shechem and Hamar. I don't think that's true either. Shechem and Hamar, or the Torah thinks you can actually become one people. Because in point of fact, and this is a point that Sternberg makes, and I think it's correct, it's not an accident that the person in the story is named Shechem and the town is named Shechem. And in point of fact, when, when Hamar and the person Shechem go to the town and say, listen, this is an opportunity to take them over, to co-opt them. And they listen because they feel this is a good opportunity. We'll, we'll take their women, all their women. We'll give them what we want. We'll take what we want. We'll take their possessions. We'll take their cattle. That in some sense, it makes them to some extent a kind of accomplice after the fact. That was Sternberg's argument, and that the Torah makes this point by you by 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 naming by making the point that the town and the person have exactly the same name, Shem. And actually, Sternberg, I think, in a different article, makes another good point, which is the following about a different story. I just cite that over here, um, and that is, we all know the story when Moshe uh, grows up. He goes, out to, he goes out to his brethren, it says, and he sees, He sees an Egyptian hitting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And the Torah says, Moshe looks this way and that way. And it's chapter two of Shemot, of course. He sees there's nobody there. Nobody will see what he does, or maybe he sees nobody is going to do anything about it. <laughs> he hit the Egyptian. <laughs> he buried him in the sand. And what Sternberg pointed out, I think it's a good observation, is that the Torah uses the same verb for both for what he sees and what he does. Even though when you think about it, it's not necessarily the same thing. Because the Egyptian is not necessarily killing the Jew. He hasn't killed him yet. He's beating him. <clears throat> he's, the, he's the master and he beats the slave. <clears throat> the Torah uses the word makeh. And then Moshe is vayach. He's makeh, the one who did it. But in the case of Moshe, he actually kills him. So one could raise the question, isn't, is, this, is this right? We think of justice as quid pro quo, as mido keneg and mido. You give what you get. You get what you give. But in the case of Moshe, they're not, not equivalent. In one case, someone is hitting somebody. In the other case, someone is killing somebody. And Sternberg's point is that the Torah goes out of its way to draw a parallel between the two by using the same word, by using the word vayach, because the Torah could have said vayarogatamitzri, and Moshe killed the Egyptian. He saw what's happening, vayarogatamitzri, that would be the normal word to use. The fact that the Torah used vayach, which lends itself both to killing, if one is makeh, a fellow person, and, he, and, and, and that person dies, then you put the killer to death. It says makeh because it's possible to be makeh and, 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 and not to kill. Makeh means to hit. So the Torah, by using parallel, the same word, as opposed to the more appropriate word, the Torah is saying, in effect, to us, the reader, think of it as this mitzvah 
deserves what he got. We, we're not going to condemn Moshe necessarily for doing what he did. That is, raises a host of interesting problems, but the point that the use of the language is specific and actually points us in certain directions is a good point. So I just want to clarify, I'm not claiming that the Torah says that Shimon and Levi are the bad guys and that Shechem and Hamar and, and the town are the good guys. I'm not claiming that at all. What it is, is that there's blame to go around on all sides. Nobody is free from, from, from criticism, including Shimon and Levi. So these are three reasons why. Someone else had a comment or question? Yeah, yes. Rabbi Silver, thank you so much. I learned constantly from you. Uh, I had a, two questions. Feel free to address or ignore either or both. Um, what difference, for, I'll just say them both and we'll go from there. Um, what difference does it make when you mentioned earlier on, notice the reversal um, uh, students uh, that one says um, we're gonna take and give the daughters and the other is the giving and taking of the daughters. What, what practical difference does that make? And then I just didn't understand also when, uh, so that's the first question. I didn't understand also that the understanding is that they're going to share each other's um, out of this love match, just like, you know, in, in uh, the royal kings and queens of Europe and all that, how they marry each other for their property and power, how so they're going to share the produce and the cattle. But suddenly, uh, when um, Shechem and Hamor are going to ex explain to their people to go through with this match, they say they're, all their cattle and substance and all their beasts will be ours. But that's not really true, right? They're going to share. Just can you elaborate on oh, My, my point points? is, I, I don't think we can tell what's really true. I think that you're talking, as, talking about these are two salesmen over here. Okay, so it's a deal. sell job. And yeah, yeah so the, and the question is when you have people that are always talking to the intended buyer, okay? And they present the deal a certain way. I think we've all seen that in our lives, I can imagine. That, okay, you know, so they're trying to uh, right. and just they, manipulate the question, them into saying what, yes. what actually is the deal? <laughs> I don't think you can tell. You know, we've all had situations where very often, you know, I, when last time that we moved, they send someone to come to your apartment, very lovely yeah. person, you know what I mean? Very, very considerate that we do this. And then they send the movers later. Right. And you say to yourself, are these the same people? Is this the same company? <laughs> you know, so we've had that, that experience, I think. But the, my point is that I think the Chumash is going out of its way here to, I don't want to use the word neutral. It's not neutral so much, but to sort of step back from the story and say, we have a story here, which is on one hand about a symbolic possession of the land. Mm -hmm. And it raises a host of questions about the story which is it raises questions about everybody in this story is, is, is questioned. Yeah. That is, let's start with Dina. In the story about Dina, we know absolutely nothing about Dina because Dina doesn't say one word in the story. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll show you another story that's parallel where the, where the Dina character does speak actually and does act. And this story, so we don't know, which, which says maybe she's, maybe okay, she didn't, she didn't like what happened, but now she's reconciled to it. The guy loves her. Maybe she's perfectly happy to stay in Shechem. I mean, how can you tell? I don't think you can tell. Um, and then we have Shechem, 
the, the act is certainly condemned by the Torah, unequivocally condemned, then the Torah goes out of its way to paint him as, as, a, as, a, as a loving person. That's interesting, actually. I'm not saying that it, it doesn't undo necessarily what he did. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the Torah do, did go out of its way to present him with some, ne- some positive words about his, and it sounds sincere, he actually rubs Dino, whatever that means. In contrast to another story where the Shechem character has no redeeming qualities. Then we have Hamorin speak them, the people of Shechem, what they're hearing, right? And then we have, as we mentioned, Yaakov's children. And then of course there's Yaakov, whose silence is deafening. What is, he, what is he thinking? When his children say we become one people, how could Yaakov ever, ever agree to such a thing? That would be completely counter to this whole book, can't be. So these are the questions. Um, let's continue a little bit more now. Yes. I have a question about the equality in size of these two units. Can you speak a bit louder, Wendy? Yeah. Uh, the size of these two units we're talking about. Yaakov has 12 sons from several women. Uh, we don't hear of any other women or any other families among them, but he's, he's got people who were with him uh, who were hired people or in some ways connected. And this is a town, and he comes and moves in near the town, and so he's one family. Right. And the daughter, the, the, there's one daughter mentioned. Right. There may be some others we don't know because they right. they didn't do anything. Um, but Dina goes into the town because she's lonesome for other girls. Right. To meet with the girls, and then she gets overtaken. And so that you've got what looks like two unequal sized groups and they're requiring this whole town's men to get circumcised. Right. In order right. for them to find the non-existent women in Jacob's family. Right, so the, you're asking a similar question to what Thomas said earlier about the realistic side to the story. How, first of all, how big is the town? You know, towns, we think of towns as big places, but yeah. there are small towns. In the, in the Talmud, a town is, I believe, 100, 100 people makes a town. Um, so it's, you know, it's, um, those are good questions. I'm, I'm not sure the Torah wants us to ask that question. I think that you, you have, wants us to accept the facts as they're given. And the idea is that Shimon and Levi have killed all the men whom they rendered defenseless through this, through their offer, which was deceptive. The Mirma is, I think, the important point, but having done so, they, in fact, have at least symbolically possessed this town. Now, they're going to leave the town very soon as well, but symbolically, they have possessed the town. Let me me just read a little bit more, and then we'll have much more to say about the story. Um, David? Yes? I I had, it just struck me as, glaring that the Torah chose the word Mirma and that they chose the word Shleimim. And those two words were like, you know, if the Torah highlighted things, that that would be highlighted. That they were, the Torah uses the word Mirma to describe them. And then it seemed the height of irony that Shem says, and they are shleimim with us, as if if you miss the point, you know, it's like hitting us over the head. Right, I agree. It's an excellent point that the, it underscores the miramo, which is, I think, from the Torah's perspective, 
a serious problem. Speaking Bermirma right. is, you know, speaking untruthfully, which takes many forms, is for the Torah, it can mean speaking, telling a lie. It can mean blaming the other person for what I'm responsible for, which is the first story in the Torah. Why did you do this? The woman made me do it, you know, that kind of thing, and not taking responsibility. Uh, the, con the confessions, which always say, but, yes, I'm responsible, but, is always the but, those kinds of statements. Uh, you know, the, the kind of misleading statements, Lovin is a pro at that. Technically, you may say the truth, but it's actually a lie. Um, there are many ways. And is, it, and is it possible that they really threw this out thinking that they would never do it and that they could just walk away from it? I that mean, is a possibility. Possibly? Right. That is a, certainly a possibility that they thought they wouldn't do it. That is certainly possible. You can't really tell. That's one possibility. The other possibility is at least Yaakov thought they were going to. That's possible. But, but Yaakov may have thought that they're not going to do it. Maybe they thought they're not going to do it. Um, again, it's hard to know in the story. I think they're I think it's one of those stories where you actually can tell, not because we're, we're poor readers, but rather because the Torah doesn't want us to get a handle on it. The Torah wants us to leave it as a very gray story, a problematic story. And, you know, I think that's, there's more to be said about this. So let's just hold off for a while. We'll come back to it. I think it's, these are all important points. That's a good point about Shlemim. I saw in the uh, chat before, maybe with Shmuel who said, one this of the word shalem is related to circumcision. I think that's also a good point because you have the word uh, when and God- And shalem was how he got there. It says vayevo shalem. Yaakov comes to shalem, but I'm saying something else, which is what he said, which is that the word shalem, which means whole or full, in the chapter where God instructs Avram to become circumcised, the chapter begins with the, with the uh, and be whole. And it's strange that you become whole through circumcision, right? In other words, the idea that the idea that the human being becomes full by becomes whole, not you, you aren't created this way, but you have to do something. And the thing you're doing actually is to impose a blemish upon your body. And the blemish upon your body, the blemish which would disqualify a sacrifice, would disqualify a priest from serving in the context of chapter 17, is what makes you shalem. So the use of the word shalemimimitanu is maybe the Torah. I might think Hamor has this in mind, but the Torah is saying these people are shalemim, which is a, a reflection upon circumcision, which is you become a whole person by sometimes by acknowledging your 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 deficiencies, or even by by in a certain sense uh, becoming blemished. In becoming blemished, becoming human, actually, more human, and that's the human being shleimut. It's become what a, what a human being can fully be. So that's an interesting separate observation about the about the narrator talking to us. I'm not saying Hamar has this in mind, but the narrator may have it in mind. Now that going forward with that, uh, it, it just it just falls right in for me that that's the significance of Yaakov's being wounded during his wrestling. That's true. And in fact, and in fact, actually, I've never heard you before today um, advance the possibility that we're already at the fourth generation um, from the Oracle 
um, with with Yaakov's children. And it could be that actually the uh, a right reading is that is that through the Maise Shechem they blew it. They could have been the fourth generation, but now the whole family. But now we see in what they did that the family is still Aramite, and it needs to be put through the Egyptian process, and then we'll get to another fourth generation. Okay, that's a very interesting and a big topic. I've, I've spoken about this actually multiple times, but uh, you're, you're raising, I think, a question that in fact, I intended to raise, which has to do with, if in fact, this is the conquest of the land and it's so problematic, what does that say? I mean, that, that's really a very important question. Um, Believe this for now. We'll get back to this. Any, um, is, it, uh, is, it, um, is it possible that this is an inflection point about what does it mean to uh, possess the land? In other words, can you intermarry with the people of the land or not? And I think the, the narrator or the Chumash is basically saying, no, we cannot intermarry, whereas Yaakov, you know, married uh, Rachel and Leah, um, and, and there is uh, all sorts of uh, times in, you know, Yehuda and, and, and so on where, so I think there's a, a point here that to, in order to be able to possess the land, you cannot intermarry, and Shoftim is full of times that when it's quiet, they intermarry and then that's the sin. Right, I think that, well, I think for sure the, the I, I think the intermarriage is certainly problematic. I was focusing more and not so much on a particular family marrying the other, which I think the Torah views negatively, but the idea of becoming Amechad is certainly out of the question. That is certainly out of the question. Um, let's, I'll leave your point for now. I wanted to come back to some of these points uh, maybe next week if we get there. And just because the story is, has so many pieces to it that are interesting. And I think it is one of the truly foundational stories of the whole Bible, because it's a story that becomes revisited in a variety of contexts later on. And each of those stories picks up on a piece of it. I mean, one of the stories picks up on the whole thing, but there are other stories that pick up on a piece of the story and then sort of run with it. But I just want to see if we can finish, just let's finish the chapter now, and then we'll go back and I'll address a lot of these comments. Um, in short, fine. So, I'm, so, so, it's, so Shimon and Levi kill the town of Shechem and they, verse number 26, they uh, kill Hamar and they kill Shechem and they take Dina. In other words, to this point, we haven't thought of this, Dina actually is, has been held, one might say captive. Now, is it captive or is she willing to be there? We'll never know. But she's inside Shechem this whole time. The whole time the negotiations are taking place. It's not that Dina is, walks out and stands with, you would expect, okay, this happened. Now Dina goes home and now let's discuss marriage. No, Dina is in Shechem the whole time. That's interesting. She's there either by free will or she's there because she can't leave. She's, she's stuck there. So we don't know, can't tell. And now suddenly we have the other children of Yaakov. It's not just Shimon and Levi. Now in verse 27, the sons of Yaakov 
came upon the corpses and they despoiled the city that had defiled their sister. Notice the city that had defiled their sister. Earlier spoke of Shechem, Timei, and the brothers, the other sons of Yaakov. Now it doesn't actually say the other sons of Yaakov, it says the sons of Yaakov. So the question is, is B'nai Yaakov in verse 27 mean the others apart from Shimon and Levi? Shimon and Levi kill Shechem and Hamar, take Dina, and they kill the people in the town. And the other ones take the spoils. Is that the case? Or does it include Shimon and Levi as well? Can't tell. It says Jacob's sons. They're also Jacob's sons. So they take, and then in verse 28, they took the cattle, right? They took all that was in the city. And then in the next verse, in verse 29, and not only that, all their wealth, their children, their wives, they took, they took, they took them captive. It's, it's exactly what Shem had spoken to, and Hamar spoke to the people of Shem. We can take their cattle, but they stopped taking the cattle. They talked about taking their, their, their women as, as wives too but not his booty. So over here, we have, now whether this is the others apart from Shimon and Levi, or whether this includes Shimon and Levi is a good question. It says B'nai Yaakov, but here this behavior of, you know, of despoiling the city that had defiled their sister and their response seems to go way beyond anything that one would normally justify. And not only that, especially taking all the women. What does that even mean? We don't hear about these women and the children. We don't hear about them later in the Torah. Um, and the word is interesting, the word vayavozu ir. Vayavozu ir, right? Uh, Where's that verse? In the previous, in verse 27, vayavozu, there it is. Vayavozu ir. The word vayavozu, of course, the word vayivez, is a word that appeared earlier in the, in, the, in the Torah. It appeared in chapter 27, 20, I'm sorry, chapter 25, It's an Esav word. Esav vayivez, Esav dismissed, Esav degraded the birthright. And that's a, that's a negative word. And it's actually interesting, we just read the Megillah a couple of days ago, and of course, we know that Haman in the Megillah is from Amalek. He's an Esau character in the Megillah. It's some of Esau's qualities. And when Haman decides to kill all the Jews, not just Mordechai, but all the Jews, what does the Megillah say about Haman? The Esau of Yaakov. He's the piece of Esau that never forgives Yaakov. He's Amalek. He's a God. He's Vayivez. The Jews, on the other hand, the Jews, on the other hand, they didn't take the biza. They don't, don't act in an ace of fashion. They act more like in a Jacob fashion, a non-ace of fashion. So here you have, once again, the, the, the choice of language is critical. It's not just that they took all kinds of things in a, in a, in a kind of Shem-like fashion, including the wives and the children, but the very use of the word the biza the choice of that word 
is a negative. So there is, I think, the Torah, the Torah is condemning what they're doing. Now, it gives their justification. But I would say, unlike the earlier story of Shimon and Levi, or the brothers speak Ramirma, because Asher Timei at Dinah, that Shem had defiled their sister. And then you could say, okay, we understand their thought. We got it. Okay, whatever. But over here, it strikes me that their behavior is so out of line that their justification rings hollow. They may have a ju- in their head, they th- may th- see themselves as justified, do whatever they want. I think the Torah's position is, is that that's not the case. And now there's something else over here. So again, and now let's, let's just read out a couple more verses, then we'll pause and take comments or questions. And now we have Yaakov's response and their, and their response. Let me just say the following. Yaakov does not address all of his sons. He addresses Shimon and Levi. And we can read that, I think, because they are two of the oldest sons, son number two and son number three. By the way, from this, you see that, that Ruven was not involved in this. This is not Ruven's doing. It's the Shimon and Levi. Maybe not Yehuda's doing either. They may, may be included with all the other sons. He said to them, achartem oti. Now the word achartem is an interesting word. They translate here, you have brought trouble on me. Uh, the story of Achav and Hanavi, when he greets him after he's caused the death of Navot, Kerem Navot, and he says, are you the Ocher Yisrael? That's what Achav says to And Eliyahu says to him, not me, it's you. Ocher could be trouble, but trouble I think is not powerful enough. In modern Hebrew, an Ocher is a, uh, is a traitor. Betrayed. So Yaakov said to Shimon and Levi, maybe you have betrayed me. You have made me odious. You have made me odious among the Canaanites and the Prezites. And I am few in number. And the other towns will come together and they will kill me. And me and my house, my family, he calls his house, family a house, will be destroyed. That's Yaakov's critique of Shimon and Levi. Now, what many have pointed out is that he doesn't say to them, you did the wrong thing. He says, what are the, what are the, what are the non-Jews going to think? What, what are the nations going to say about me? They'll gather together and they'll kill me. So they, they, they see Yaakov's non-condemnation of the act here as, as, as less powerful then the response in verse 31, Vayomru, well, here they translate, they answered, should our sister be treated like a prostitute? And that's the last verse in chapter 34. So the argument that some have made is that the fact that number one, they get the last word. That's number one. And number two, not only did they get the last word, but their argument is a moral argument. You could disagree with it. But their argument is, we did morally the right thing. You're talking practicalities. That practically speaking, it could lead to trouble. They're going to gang up against us. They're going to attack us. We don't care. We, 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 got, we got to do the right thing. We, we got to defend the honor of our sister. Mm-hmm. And this, so therefore, the argument is that when you reach chapter 34, they get the last word. And they make a moral claim, as opposed to a pragmatic one. 
And therefore, this is part of Sternberg's argument that the Torah, therefore, has taken their side. Um, I don't think that's right. I think it's an interesting observation. I've made it myself multiple times, but I don't think actually it's right. Uh, first of all, let me point out that later in the Torah, Yaakov does condemn the act. In chapter 49, he condemns it. Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their weapons are weapons of violence. Chapter 49. I don't want to be part of their council. I'm not, I can't be part of their council. I'm going to divide them up. They're dangerous together. Because in their anger, they killed people. They uprooted the animals in their anger. Or cursed is their anger. Yes. He didn't say they are cursed. He said cursed is their anger. But the context of it clearly condemns what they did. And they killed, in their anger they killed, clearly is referencing the story of Shem. So I, over here he doesn't, in fact, condemn the act. And maybe he doesn't condemn the act for any number of reasons. Maybe he doesn't want to get into a whole dispute about right and wrong. He says, listen, practically speaking, you've put us all in danger, which is also wrong. It's not just practical. When you endanger a bunch of people, that's also problematic. Can't look just at the act in a narrow sense. You must look at the act in a broader sense. That's one point. But the other point is, verse number 31, that translation, I think, is problematic. Because if the translation that JPS gives us were, were correct, I would have expected the Torah to say something different. I would have expected the Torah to say, but they said to him, it doesn't say that. It says, let's say they answered him. It says they said perhaps to each other. Now they're not responding to him. They're saying to themselves, what? Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And it's not even clear by the way, who the he is. Because the he is certainly Shem, who just took her. But I wonder whether the he is not just Shem. What they're saying to each other, I can't understand our father. He, his, his whole approach to this is, is, is off. He's treating her through his, through his non-action, through his non-doing anything, through his words condemning us, <laughs> treating our sister like a zona. If that be the case, First of all, it's interesting that they're talking about Jacob, not, not to Jacob's face. So it's not in a sense, yes, the Torah tells us what they're saying, but it's not a response to Yaakov. And we'll come back to this later on. And the last word is interesting, is achoteinu. Now that's how the story begins, right? Achedina, right? Shimon and Levi are called achedina. And now if we just look back at the story for a moment, just to recap what we have here, look back at the story, um, and we ask ourselves the question, and we'll continue with this next time as well. What is the story actually about? The story of Dina. What lies at the heart of chapter 34 of Genesis? And to me, what lies at the heart of the story is the following. The relationship between Yaakov and Yaakov's children. That's what lies at the heart of the story. Because Yaakov, as he says, me and my house, my family. Jacob's vow, Jacob's mission in life is to build a family. That is, to build a structure where everybody is in fact included. And over here, what's clear is that there's a 
not just a dispute between Yaakov and Shimon and Levi on one hand, a tactical question, maybe a moral question. There's another problem here, which is it appears, and the Torah has emphasized that from Shimon and Levi's standpoint, one can easily read it, that the reason our father is so passive here is because she is achotenu, that is to say, she is the, she is the daughter of our mother Leah. And this takes us back to the entire way the family has been built, that Shimon and Levi, right? And that she, Reuben doesn't act for whatever reason. Shimon and Levi, they named Shimon and Levi because their mother said that God, Shema Hashem God had heard that I was hated and gave me this child Shimon. And with Levi, she said, perhaps this time my husband will join me. I've bought for him three children. They're born to the mother who felt herself uh, an unbeloved woman, right? The first child, she says, God has seen my onyi, my inuit. So you're talking about a family that the way it's been constructed, without into blaming anybody, is constructed along the lines of the children of Rachel, the children of Leah. And what's striking is that in chapter 34, Yaakov's ultimate utter passivity in this, in this story He's not going to do anything. One would wonder, for example, if the person involved was somebody like Joseph, what would Yaakov have done? Would he have said, Sai, what can I do? My house is being... Or he would have acted very differently. Now, it is true, just we have to be honest about it, it's not his son, it's his daughter. And the fact of the matter is that's a patriarchal book. That is to say, the construction of the house. And Jacob has many daughters, by the way. It says his daughters and sons rose up to console him in chapter 37, but they're not mentioned. So to build a house means to build a covenantal family where everybody everybody means every man in the house is included, maybe together with his wife, okay. But so that's also a factor. But in short, we have the story over here, which at its core is about Yaakov and Yaakov's sons. And the, Yaakov's vow and Yaakov's aspiration to build the bayit, and this story points out the great difficulties he will encounter because of the internal conflicts within the family. That's what that's the core of the story. Let me just conclude by giving, mentioning a, a, a parallel story that I've mentioned on many occasions. It's also in my new book. And um, of course, it's the story of Amnon and, and, and Tamar, which is written clearly. The author of that story has the Chumash opened because it, it, it's, 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 it's exactly modeled on the story of, of the story of Dina. And of course, since it's modeled on the story of Dina, we can look at each character in the story. Maybe it pays to do that a bit next week. Look at each character and see how they appear in a different context. So, but the story of Amnon and Tamar is not about Amnon and Tamar. Nothing to do with Amnon and Tamar. Mm. The story of Amnon and Tamar is about David. If you have to pick out one person, it's about David and his son, Absalom, Absalom and David. That's what the story of Amnon and Tamar is actually about. It's about David's doing nothing to protect his own daughter, whose yeah. name is Tamar, and Avshalom, Avshalom's killing of his older brother Amnon as, as revenge for the, uh, for the, for the molesting of his, of his sister Tamar. That's what the story is about at its core. It has all kinds of other interesting pieces. It's about, it's about kingship, it's about succession, 
It's about the difficulty of succession. It's about the person who might have been king, who will not be king, namely Avshalom, who in my view is the appropriate successor to David and the only appropriate one. But the point is it takes the form of Amnon and Tamar. The story over here in chapter 34 is about Dina, Shechem and Dina. It's not about Shechem or about Dina, really. It's really about Yaakov. And it's Yaakov and Yaakov, Shimon and Levi. It's, I would say there's a, you know, every, what's the, the uh, one of the laws of thermodynamics? Every underreaction, I would say the law of, the law of the law in the Bible of human behavior, ever, every underreaction creates an opposite and sometimes unequal overreaction. And that's the story over here. One guy does nothing, that's Yaakov, and the others do too much, and that's Shimon and Levi. So that's what lies at the core of the story. Next week, I'd like to pick this up. And the Torah has blamed to cast around everybody. The narrator is not beholden to any one person. That's just the wrong-headed thinking. The Torah has its own point of view, which is everybody's at fault. There is a problem. And in order to resolve the problem, everybody's got to self-correct, which is the larger problem of Yaakov's house. He wants to build this house, but he's his own worst enemy. In order to build it, everybody has to learn how to work with the, with the other person. It's Yaakov and Yosef and the brothers and this, and, and then how, how Rachel figures into it. It's very complicated. And that's the rest of Rashid. But this chapter really sets the stage for what follows in terms of the challenges in building the bike. Okay, so we have five minutes here. I'll take comments or questions now. Anybody wants to ask? Zella, yeah. Um, wait a minute. Yes, it, it's interesting because um, verse 30, I counted seven times where Yaakov is alluding to himself, me, my, my house, I, my men, my odious trouble on me, without a mention of Dina, it's the brothers who actually bring her back into the story. Right, right. That's a very good point. And actually, you have this later on as well with Yaakov. When the story, when uh, the brothers come back from Egypt and they don't have, Shimon's not with them, and they find all this money, you know. So what? So they, and they, they say, we have to take Binyamin down to Mitzrayim to get Shimon back. And Yaakov says to the brothers, what, what, not going down there. Yosef Joseph is missing, Shimon is missing. And you, now you want to take this one? It's all on me. All these tragedies have befallen me. And that is you know, a very human response, I think. Um, and it's true from a certain perspective that from his perspective, he's the father of all these children. In other words, what's a tragedy for Jacob, Shimon missing is a tragedy for Jacob. Shimon is not the most favored, but he's still a son. Joseph obviously is a tragedy. Binyamin would be a tragedy. That's unnecessarily true for the other people in the family. The loss of Joseph for the brothers is not a tragedy. It might, it might involve a celebration. It might involve second thoughts, but I wouldn't call it a tragedy. Not, they, they want to, okay, he's gone, father. End your period of mourning. He refuses to end it. He's, he's going to mourn him forever. So. I think that there is that sense with Yaakov in, in, in that story as well of a self-focus. And I think that's, he has to be able to step out of himself and to, which he will do later, I think, and to see the bigger picture. But that's a, it's a very good point. The, the brothers are the one that bring Dina into the picture as they call her Achotenu, our half-sister. Um, 
I, let me add one other point just for food for thought, which is that you have a story here of brothers defending sisters, right? That's, that's what the story is about. Shimon and Levi in particular, and all the other brothers, less so, but also are speak up and, and, and you know, and we're talking about a book in which we have already encountered three stories where a man says to his wife, say you're my sister. So the question that raises is, right? Say my sister that, I, that I'm not going to get hurt. And in all three of those stories, what they've actually done is put her in great jeopardy, right? They, they actually end up putting the sister in jeopardy because she's not connected to, um, she's not connected to, to, to this man. He's, not, he's, only, he's only a brother, as it were, right? And she's, in two of the three cases, she's snatched. In the third case, she's almost taken. Um, and the question is, I just put out as a question, I have to think about this, is there a relationship between the three sister stories we encounter earlier and this particular story where she really is a sister, right? The, the big emphasis, she really is the sister and the brothers defending their sister. That's an interesting question. The Avshalom story, of course, is the same. There he's defending his sister or avenging his sister. Um, anybody else for a comment or question here? Uh, Samuel, yes? All right, the, uh, the, um, the cantillation notes for the last pasuk uh, are not a question, they are, they are a declaration. It says, Vayomru, stop, our, our sister was treated like a prostitute. Right, 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 right. No, I agree with you, actually. And not every question is really a question. <laughs> we know that, right? <laughs> it's, kind of a kind of, it's a kind of rhetorical question, I would say, which is the strongest... I would say that in general, in the Bible, when God asked the question, it's not a question. When God said to Adam, where are you? I don't think it was actually, I mean, it could be read as a question, but I think it's probably better read not as a question. Like you would say in slang, where you at? It doesn't mean where are you? It means like, where is your brother Cain? Where is your Cain? Where's your brother Abel? God knows where Abel is. God says, his blood cries from the ground. So I think we, it's very interesting in general, in a text and in non-text to think about when people ask, present something as a question, is it really a question? And you're 100% right, over here, it's not a question. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a rhetorical question, which is 99% of the time a, uh, a, uh, a criticism. What, is this the way, can we allow our sister to be, to be treated this way? Well, the, the answer is obviously not, that, that's there. Now, again, I think they're saying that to each other. I don't think they're saying that to Jacob. I think they're saying it about Jacob. He talks to them and then they say to themselves, not to him. I don't understand this guy. What is this? So I think that's an interesting question. In other words, if this is correct, then chapter 34 ends with the brothers talking negatively about their father. I mentioned this interesting because in chapter 37, it says that Joseph brought back evil report, evil report to his father, Dibara, bad words to his father. What was he bringing back? Possibly this. You know, Father, what they're saying about you? Because here you actually have it. They're saying bad things about you. So that's possible that what Yosef does later, he's uh, Jacob's spy. Not that Yaakov assigned him as such, but he reports back to Yaakov all of the stuff the other brothers are saying about Yaakov. And we know that by the time chapter 37 rolls around, that Reuben has slept with his father's uh, concubine, that Shimon and Levi have... Um, you know, have a very bitter dispute with their father. 
Chapter 38 begins with Judah checking out. Joseph's gone, so the family is dissolving completely. And perhaps what Joseph is doing is reporting back this kind of speech to his father. But it is, yes, it is not really a question. Anybody Rabbi? else? Yes, yes, Rabbi, it's Sandra. Hi. Yeah. Um, on the issue of Achotenu and Achoti and the uh, story of, of my sister, our sister, um, Tikva Freimer-Kensky um, uh, says, and she's uh, emphatic about this, that this is the uh, first time in the book of Genesis that brother saves uh, sibling as opposed to brother um, deceiving or trying to kill or uh, splitting from or whatever uh, sibling. So the fact that that we have to pay close attention to when it says um, and when it says and the fact that the entire story, which is about so much and it's so packed, ends with, uh, in this way, I think Mayor Sternberg has, uh, I think a, a good, uh, a very good point, but, um, uh, um, Tikva Framerkensky says, because this is the first time in Genesis that brother saves brother, brother saves sister, um, and and uh, that we have to pay attention to the fact that Chumash ends the this entire bloody and difficult and fraught chapter with, um, I mean, come on, it's all about our sister, um, and uh, I think it is important just to keep in mind that this is um, a unique point in Genesis. Uh, where brother saves sister, as opposed to um, all the other behaviors of brother I, I versus totally brother. Agree with that. I totally agree. I, 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 I'm not suggesting that the Torah utterly condemns Shimon Levi or the brothers. It doesn't. There's some very positive things, including the conquest of the land, including the concern for his sister. In fact, I made the point many times that when Yaakov sends Yosef to try to make peace with his brothers, he says to Yosef, aren't they in Shechem? Shechem is a city of brotherly love. Shechem is where with siblings defend their siblings. <laughs> he doesn't get to Shechem. By the time he gets to Shechem, they're gone. But it's clear. And Rashi points this out. They're in Shechem. Shechem is the place which demonstrates brotherly concern for, for, the, for his sibling. I don't disagree with that. I agree with that a thousand percent. I'm saying something mm -hmm. else. That Sternberg is wrong, and very wrong, actually, because it is true that this is positive. But it's also true that there are, there are six or seven negatives, and they're big negatives. The defiling, mm -hmm. covenantal, uh, the lying, the picking on people who can fight back, the taking of the spoils. And I'll just add in conclusion that we discover in the next chapter, not only did they take spoils from Shechem, they took idolatry from Shechem too. Mm -hmm. That's a big mm -hmm. no-no. So there is no way. There is no way that any reader who sees the text, in my view, could possibly think that there's a... a, a, a a validation of everything that Shimon and Levi do. My point is, it's all great. My point is, yes, there's a very good piece to it. And there's also many negative pieces to it. And that's what makes it interesting. And that's why, in fact, it is uh, picked up by so many other stories, because there's so many different pieces here to pick up. So we'll continue with this next week. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank Noah. you. Thank yes. you. Noah, what do you want to say? Uh so first of all, thank you again, Rabbi Silver, as always, for a wonderful class and for everyone here uh, for participating in our learning community. It really adds so much when you share your questions and thoughts. Uh, I did want to let people know that we do have another new class starting tonight. If you would like to uh, double dip and have another dose of Drisha with Ms. Sarah Zager, uh, she will be talking about 
um, how domestic labor is thought of in uh, various stages of Jewish law and Jewish thought. I'm very excited about that. Um, and of course, next week on Sunday, we have the annual Rappaport Memorial Lecture. If you are not yet signed up, you are highly encouraged to join us for that. Um, and if you are, or if you aren't in Rabbi Silver's Tuesday night class on the sitter, uh, I did want to let everyone know that we're going to be having a special guest this week and next, Dr. Nathaniel Berman, uh, which I'm very looking, very much looking forward to, uh, of course. And um, if you would like to join us uh, for those two classes or for all of the remaining three sessions, uh, then please sign up on our website. The link is in the chat. Be well, everyone.